0: Uh, and today we have come to the third temptation. So if you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is out of respect for the speaker, who is God. Not me, I am just the reader. So now let's, uh, pay, attention, pay, let's pay attention to God's inerrant word. This is from Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through 11. Again... The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came. And we're ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the beauty it reveals to us about Jesus and his accomplished work for us, Lord. He is truly our champion. He has completed the work of salvation for us. Where we are weak, he is strong. And he has given us his righteousness as a gift and taken our sins in the best deal of all time. And so we pray you would help us to see that, Lord, but also see Uh, how we are called into living into the beauty and wonder of eternal quality life even now as we trust in you and as we trust uh, that your promises are better than the promises of this world in every imaginable way, Lord. So we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect world as we entrust ourselves to you, that through hearing your word, your spirit will sanctify us, that you will beautify us, your afflicted ones. we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, there are some events in life that, like, sear themselves into your memory so you know and you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing at the time that they happened. For... Our grand grandparents or great grandparents, maybe that was the well, it was Pearl Harbor. Uh, for our parents or grandparents, maybe that was the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Maybe it was the explosion of the Challenger shuttle. Maybe it was the collapse of the Twin Towers. Uh, although for the Twin Towers and for the Challenger explosion, I definitely remember exactly where I was and what I was doing. But there was another time in my life that is seared into my memory. And that was when I learned for the first time that it was possible to sell your soul to the devil. I remember sitting with my friend, Ricky Kiefer. We were both punk rock. This is 1982. Sitting in her apartment, uh, in her mom's apartment, in the living room, listening to this new album that had just come out. And the music was just freakishly, almost supernaturally good. The kind of thing where you're like, how is this so good? How is this possibly so good? And my friend Ricky Kiefer, she confided in me. She said, You know why it's so good? It's because they sold their soul to the devil. And I was shocked. I was shocked by that reality. I was, like, I was like, this opened up this whole new vista of possibility for me. Was that even true? Could they really do that? Could I really do that? Could I really escape the suffering and struggle of being and feeling insignificant and unknown and unvalued and unloved in the world? just by making a simple deal? As a young aspiring guitar player, as I went on in my career and learned about the the legends of Robert Johnson, the great blues player selling his soul to the devil at the crossroads, or my hero Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin selling his soul to the devil for his talent and world fame, uh, the whole concept of like selling your soul to the devil became this terrifying and tempting reality through my adult life up until, of course, the time when Jesus got a hold of me. I suppose maybe I should thank the Catholics for like beating the fear into me that, that kept me from taking the bait maybe. Uh, shout out to the Catholics. <laughs> but listen, the whole, what is the, whole, the whole concept revolves around what? The whole concept revolves around the question, is it worth it to be on top in this world, even at the cost of being at the bottom in the next? Now, when you state it, you know, when you state it so bluntly like that, given the realities of heaven and hell and the afterlife, of course it doesn't make sense. But Satan never states things so bluntly, does he? He's always smarter than that. He uh, is the master of making that deal sound so sweet and so tempting and so worthwhile, especially when you're tired and you're in the trenches uh, and you don't have any relief in sight. Uh, And believe it or not, that's what he's trying to do here with Jesus. He's giving Jesus his sell-your-soul moment of opportunity, probably the best deal he's ever offered anybody. And he's trying to make the offer sound like a better plan than the one that Jesus has already got from the Father. Uh, And so by seeing what Jesus does... What do we learn? We learn something beautiful about him, his character and his work for us. But we also learn uh, what to do when the devil tries to convince us that this world is better than the next because he's gonna do that almost every day. That's what he does. And that's what we're up against. And so let's look at this. What's going on here? There's a big, big difference in this last test. And that is, first point, that the gloves have come off. The gloves have come off now in this match between Satan and the devil. In the first couple of temptations, right, last couple of weeks, we looked at the temptations or the testings were what uh, Satan would come to Jesus and say, uh, look, since you're the son of God, he would say, recognize who he is and then give him the subtle suggestions for how he might use his power for his own benefit, for his own selfish ends, uh, in a way in a way that surreptitiously breaks allegiance with the Father. kind of roundabout. trickery. None of that here. This one is straight up. He just comes to Jesus and says, "I, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you all the glory of those kingdoms in the world." which is your mission, right? That's what God has sent you here to do. Why go through all the trouble? Why go through the pain and suffering? Do you know what I'm going to do to you, Jesus? You can't win. Why don't you just take the easy road and take all the kingdoms and all the glory? I'll give them to you. If, small if, if you just bow down and worship me. At least this is finally honest, right? This is Satan saying what he really wants, what he's really after, what the other temptations were really all about. They were subtle ways of getting Jesus to break faith with the Father, to break allegiance with him, and to suddenly surreptitiously link himself up with Satan in the same way that the first Adam, our forefather in the garden, did. Uh, But at least now this is finally honest. What does Satan want? He wants worship. He wants to be recognized as equal to or even greater than God the Father. That's what he wants. And so that's the deal he's willing to offer Jesus to get it. Now listen... Uh, Satan's probably not going to offer any of of you all that same deal. And that's probably a good thing, right? We're going to find out real quick what we worship if you got that kind of deal on the table. Uh, But the thing is, he doesn't have to. He doesn't even have to because we're willing to settle for so much less. We're willing to settle for so much less. Now, let me say it right up front before I kind of get into this a little bit. I know you love the Lord. I know that you love Jesus. I know you worship God. And yet, we are in a pressure cooker, in an environment, in a world system created by a supernatural intelligence to do one single thing, and that is to trick us into breaking our allegiance with God and breaking faith with God and place our allegiance and faith in the things of this world so that we will be disappointed, discouraged, and destroyed, uh, and then pass that destruction and discouragement off on everyone around us. And so, um, you know, what does worship mean? What is what is worship? Worship is what we place ultimate value or worth in. It comes from an old English word, worth-ship. Uh, simplified now to worship. Uh, You ask yourself questions like, what's really most important to you? What are you really devoted to? Uh, What do you, uh, where does your loyalties really lie? What do you, what do you love the most, really? What are you willing to fight for? What are you most afraid you're going to lose? Those are the kind of scary questions you ask yourself. You know, to figure out what it is that we're actually worshiping in real life, not our systematic theology, right? We all, we're all Bible nerds. We got the right answers. I know you got the right answers. I got the right answers. <laughs> uh, I know you all got good cover stories too. I got great cover stories. <laughs> but what do we really worship? Let me, let me tell you what I think. Let me offer some, is it possible suggestions? Is it Possible. Is it possible that the church believes that we need political and social power, which can be a good thing, but that we need it to be effective for the gospel? I see a lot, a lot, a lot of running around, a lot of fear over the changing atmosphere or the changing culture around us see a lot of the bigger church focusing a whole lot of energy on maintaining or regaining political ground and social ground and social power, Uh, and yet there's nowhere in the Bible that says we need social or political power in order to be effective in the gospel. In fact, you could probably make a case that it says the opposite. You could look at the early church who had nothing but spilled blood who were incredibly powerful. I've had the opportunity to be outside the bubble of North American Christianity in a culture where there was no political power, no social power, and the church is on fire. So startlingly different. uh, it, It was hard to comprehend as a Western Christian stepping into that atmosphere. And it was even harder stepping back into North America and trying to explain to people what it was that I saw and what I experienced uh, without discouraging people or making, you know, people got their, you know. People were like, used to tell me, I hate it when you come back from China, man. (laughs) I wasn't trying to bum anybody out. I was just trying to say, look, this, I want to explain to you what I saw and what it was like because it was amazing. You know, you know, It's like we have this belief that earthly power corruption, respect uh, respect of the world is better than living life in the power of the Spirit. And what are the optics that that produces to the outside world? The optics that produces is that we say one thing, but what we really believe is that this world is more important than the next. Um, Another big one. we believe that the innate desires of our hearts must be good because they seem right and natural and true. As if we think, let me rephrase that, we have a reliable internal moral compass that's able to guide us in life so that we're able to make right decisions And the Bible doesn't say anything like that. The Bible says that there is an external uh, source of moral compass in God's Word that we're called to understand and listen and conform ourselves to that's not natural to us. Uh, And that plays that, that... that belief that we have, this internal moral compass that is able to guide us in life, plays itself out in a million ways in our identity, in our sexuality, in our money, in our marriage, in our ambition, in our greed, and the list could go on and on, to on and on and on uh, forever. Uh, and the belief what's the belief? That living under the authority of worldly principles is better than biblical principles and the optics to the world watching us is again, that we value the world more than we value God. And people say, well, if they don't really believe what they say, why should we believe what they say? I mean, we could go on and on, you know. We could talk about how we believe there's a compartmentalization between our secular lives and our religious lives. We could talk about how we believe that our money belongs to us. We could talk about the belief that all limits are bad. We could talk about how we believe that prayer is the last resort. We could talk about how we believe that sin is the fun stuff we can't do anymore. Or that obedience is where happy goes to die. Or we could just look at our checkbooks, our calendars, and our prayer life and see what's really, really important to us and what we really worship. Ah, man, that's disturbing. I get it. I'm preaching to myself. Preaching to myself. Intellectually, I know God pretty well. I'm edumacated. I know God. I know all about God. I could break it down nine ways to Sunday. Break it down nine ways on Sunday. (laughs) That's what we're doing now, right? But my heart, oh God, my heart, who will save me? Oh, wicked man that I am. I praise the Lord God for Jesus Christ. Do we really worship God? Yes, I know that we really do worship God, and yet we're in a pressure cooker, an atmosphere where Satan is constantly tempting us to put our real trust in other temporary things. Uh, And that's a problem. It's a big problem. Because the command of God is what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's what's required to win eternal life. And nobody does it. I don't do it. You don't do it. Nobody does it. Except for one person. And that's the second point. That Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Whenever we go... uh, me and Nisa go, like, we shop for something on Craigslist. Nisa, like, hates it. She hates it because I'm, like, notorious. I, I like, love the no- negotiating of it. She, like, hates the negotiating of it. And so I'll go in and I'll, like, offer, like, the most ridiculous price I can think of, you know? And I'm like, what? You know, they can say no. They can totally say no, right? And Nisa, like, hates it. It's su- She's like crazy embarrassed as I'm doing it, but then when we're driving home in the car with it in the back seat, she's like, yes, I can't believe you did that, I can't believe you did that, <laughs> right, there's a name for guys like me, there's a name for guys like me, we call it, it's called lowballers, lowballers, <laughs> salesmen hate guys like me, uh, right, And that's what Satan is, and that's what he's doing right now. He's being a lowballer to Jesus. Now, look, I have no doubt this is Jesus as a man in the desert, 40 days with no food and no water. He's tired. He's afraid of what's happening. Uh, He is in every way tempted as we are experiencing all the gamut of human motions the way we do. Uh, He is understanding that this offer is giving him at least part of the mission uh, that God has called him to do. He probably understands that this means there would be no cross. At least it seems right. Right now it seems okay, but ultimately this is a lowball offer from Satan. Why? He's only, he's only offering half of what the promise is for, 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 for one thing. Jesus is set to inherit What? everything, the cosmos, not just the heavenly, just, not just the earthly kingdoms of the world, but he's, he's called to bring the earthly kingdoms of the world and the heavenly kingdom together and to bring the people into, into that new creation. Uh, and if he does it by breaking faith with the Father, he's no longer the sin the sacrifice that's needed to pay the penalty for our sins and so even if, even if it is Satan's power to give him or maybe if it's even Jesus' power to take it, if he does so by sinning he loses it and becomes essentially just like Satan or worse and so it's a bad deal it's a bad deal um, Satan's deals are always bad deals. No matter how pretty he makes them look or how nice he makes them smell, they're always, always bad, bad deals. Look, we talked about last week, I talked about how the Psalms were all about Jesus, how God, it's either Jesus um, as God speaking to us or Jesus as man speaking for us and bearing our sins. And But so is really the rest of the Bible. The whole Bible is about Jesus and Jesus had that self-awareness. He told his apostles at the end of his earthly mission in, in Luke 24, he says, all the Bible is about me. And what that means is what? That as he was a boy, as he was studying the scriptures and reading Torah, he had this innate knowledge fueled by the power of the Spirit that what he was reading was about him. Can you imagine that? Reading the Psalms and coming having this rock-solid realization and understanding that these songs were about you and what you were going to do. What did he read? This is what he would have known. He would have read the Psalms, and the Psalms said, I have set my king on Zion. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He would read Isaiah who said, the increase of your government and the, of your peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. You will establish it and you will uphold it. And with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You would have read Daniel. This is the scene immediately preceding Acts 1.8, where Jesus is lifted up into the clouds of heaven. This is a vision Daniel saw of the future that he embedded in history as a memory in the text 500 years before it happened. Jesus goes up into the clouds of heaven, and then Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what Jesus knew was true about him. That's what Jesus knew the promises of the father were to him. That's why Satan is a low baller. And what happened? At the end of his mission, Jesus stands on another lofty mountain with his disciples and proclaims what? Uh, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not just earth, the whole thing all creation, all new creation. Revelation, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so now knowing all of that, how did Jesus respond? This is so, so sick. He does, before he even quotes scripture to him, he's like, get out of here. He's like, get out, low baller. Get out, Satan, please. Get out. Be gone, Satan. Go away. He just tells him to kick rocks. And, you know, what's a, what's, what adds weight to this is that this is not the last time that, that Satan tries this. Almost the same language later, Peter, his number one guy, says to Jesus, no, Lord. Jesus confides in him that he's going to be crucified. And Peter's like, oh, no. No, Lord, this will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? It's almost the same thing. Get behind me, Satan. And then later, the same thing. Peter tries, that cuts a guy's ear off trying to keep it from happening again. Peter, this is his number one guy. This is a guy he invested in for years, taught directly by Jesus, walked with Jesus face to face, saw Jesus' miracles over the course of three years, intimately connected to him, and still one of the last acts he does before the crucifixion is try to stop Jesus. I'm doing the mission. Come on, Pete. But that's what people do. That's what we do. That's what Adam did in the garden. He decided that this world was better than the next. That's what Israel did in the wilderness. They decided that this world is better than the next. That's what the church has done over the course of centuries. We over and over and over again prove by our actions that what we really believe is that the world, this world, is better than the next. And that's what you do. That's what you're going to do tomorrow morning. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you're going to do something that says this world is more important than the next. And then there's Jesus who said, no, this world is not more important than the next. This world is a trinket. This world is corrupt, this world is sinful, this world is temporary, this world is fading away. The glories of this world are insignificant compared to the glory that the Father has prepared for me and for all those that I am called to bring into his salvation. And so he kept faith not just for himself, but he kept faith for us and became our champion. His faithfulness, his obedience is given to us as if we did it. So no matter how many times, God, Jesus did not give up on Peter. He's not gonna give up on you. He didn't give up on Israel. And he's not going to give up on us. He even says, Jesus says to Peter, your faith is going to hold. Why? Not because you're so strong. Because I'm praying for you. And Jesus is praying for us right now. In all those moments of temptation when we take the bait and believe that this world is better than the next... And the consequences roll out. Jesus is praying for us that our faith holds, and that we trust in Him. Right? Why did Jesus? Why did Jesus do it? Why was Jesus able to do it? Because Jesus knew that God had better promises. He knew that God had better promises. He knew that God was more trustworthy that the promises that God made, he would come through on. He knew that all the glory of this world was a lowball offer, but the glory of the heavenly was better. And that's the last point. We are being set apart from this world. Why? Why? Because we're being set apart for glory. We're being set apart for glory. Listen to this thing, that, this crazy thing that Paul says. He says, uh, the Apostle Paul, he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What does that mean? One of the most formative things I learned in, in school was uh, our, our New Testament professor. Uh, wow, what a... Steve Ball, we used to call him, we'd say his classes were bossom awesome because he was so Awesome such a godly man and such a learned man, but he would say that having the indwelling spirit means that we have been put in touch with the powers of the world to come. This is kind of hard to understand because we, we as time-brown creatures necessarily think of the new creation of the next age as something like way off in the future, but that's not actually true. Uh, the new age... The age of the spirit has already started. They're kind of like running parallel right now. And there'll be a consummation when the physicality of it changes. But even right now, there is another age where all, most of our brothers and sisters who have died in Christ are already living in that reality. In that age of spirit power. In, uh, and we are Connected to that world and put in touch, so that those the powers of the age to come uh, are what, what a friend of mine just last week told me are already beginning to bubble up within us. He was talking to me about what he, how how the life of the world to come through our love of Jesus and through gazing on his beauty and perfection and what he has done for us is beginning to already bubble up into us in this ever eternal quality life now. Uh, that's what that means, that the powers that we will possess as resurrected saints is already bubbling up in us now, that the glory of the resurrection life is already being pulled into us from that age for us to walk in. If we have the spirit, that power is bubbling up in us. And so Paul says that we're being transformed from glory to glory to glory to glory. What does that mean? Let me tell you a story. I... One of the scariest things that's ever happened to me in life, <laughs> well, that's not true. <laughs> One of the scariest things that's ever happened in my Christian life, <laughs> let's put it that way, was uh, a friend of mine. A friend of mine died. A friend of ours died. He was part of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous group that we all belong to, and I had good go into his memorial service his service was, was full of all these men that I respected and wanted their approval and wanted their, uh, wanted their respect and their approval. And most of them were very unchristian. Uh, there were, he was also a radio personality and there was a lot of like radio personalities in the room. So like famous people, which kind of gets me a little giddy, you know? Uh, and so... I happen to know something about this guy. That in the last, there was a team of four or five Christians that were friends with him, that were at his bedside in the hospital every day, witnessing to him. And towards the last couple days of his life, he actually uh, confessed and placed his faith in Lord Jesus. Not many people knew that about him. And as we, uh, as the uh, as the as the memorial service progressed, it became you know I went to the open mic section where anybody could come up and take the mic and speak. Uh, And I just got this intense pressure in my heart. I don't know how to explain it any other way, that I was supposed to go up there and grab the mic and tell everybody what had happened and share the gospel in this room. And so, of course, the first thing I said was, no, (laughs) no way, not happening, I'm not gonna do it. And pressure, like, it's got worse and worse and worse. Finally, towards the, I raise my hand at the end. I get called on the last guy. And I stand up. And I share, you know, everybody's up there going, oh, he's in such a better place now. And all the pagan things that people say at pagan funerals about about dead loved ones, and I stood up and I said, he is in a better place right now, but it's not because of what he has done in life. It's not because he was a great person. Although he was a good guy, he didn't attain the righteousness. He didn't attain perfect righteousness, which is what is required to gain entrance into heaven. Instead, I know that he's in a better place right now because in the last days of his life, he placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. and His sins were forgiven and he was given the righteousness of God. And I shared the gospel with this room full of, like, anti-Christ men who I so wanted to like me. (laughs) And you know what? It was fantastic. It was fantastic. Did I gain their respect? No. I kind of got blacklisted. But God taught me something. He taught me that I was able to do the really hard stuff that he was going to call me to do. And I knew that he was going to empower me to do that if I just like walked and stepped into it. And that I was in touch, even though I was afraid, there was a power from the age to come that had bubbled up in me and just spilled out over me. It was like this example of, of the power of the spirit active in my life, even like kind of partially against my own will, Right? I didn't want to do it, but I did it. He taught me that I no matter how afraid I was, no matter how hard it was, there was this power of the Spirit that would bubble up in me and make these things possible. I could do the hard things. So that a couple of years later in life when I'm sitting going through customs in Beijing with two suitcases full of evangelistic and theological material, I'm not tripping. Because God has got my back. There's a power of the age to come that is protecting me. Uh, There are people sitting in this room right now who have chosen obedience and financial hardship over comfort. And they've come out of it with way more than they expected. They've come out of it with loved ones trusting in Jesus. Uh, there's someone in this room right now who is so afraid to tithe because money was super tight. And he did, anyways. God didn't give him any more money, but instead, God removed the crazy obsession <laughs> to spend money, and he was content with what he had. Uh, there's people in this room right now who had family that are, were in big trouble on the East Coast in such a bad environment, and they were powerless to do anything about it except pray. Uh, And they prayed, and God did something so crazy to pull that family member out of that terrible situation and place them in the middle of a fertile and godly Christian environment that still blows people's minds to this day. Uh, There are people in this room right now that I know who have walked into businesses that they have robbed at gunpoint offering to pay back the money that they stole, risking prison in order to do the right thing, and instead of prison, they got the kind of freedom they never even knew existed and are on fire for Jesus. There was someone in this room last week who was the very last person on earth who was ever going to believe in Jesus. (laughs) An avowed Satanist, and yet he does because people were praying for him. We have another friend who was also the, only, the last guy in the world who was ever going to be saved. In fact, he like almost single-handedly kicked me and Brian out of AA, <laughs> made up stories about, made up all kinds of crazy stories about us trying to exorcise demons from people. It's just nonsense, right? But God gave him a brain tumor and through that brain tumor, he came to Jesus and he died a Christian because we were constantly praying for him for years. There are people in this room right now who thought they would never, ever be free of a terrible addiction or some, some sin that was making their life miserable and yet they are. And have consistently been so for a long time because the the life of Jesus is bubbling up into us from one glory to the next, from one glory to the next. What am I saying? I'm saying, look, you can live as a Christian. You can live as if this world is better than the next. You can do it. But you don't have to. You really don't have to. There's something so much better that Christ has promised us that the Holy Spirit gives us, and that's that's just talking about the glory that we're able to grow into now, which our confessions say is tiny compared with the glory that God promises us to come. Listen, Jesus prayed for us. What did he pray? He prayed that the glo- he said, "Father, the glory you have given me, I have now given to them." What? What does that mean? John said that we are beloved children of God now but what we, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him. What? Paul said Jesus will transform our lowly bodies into his, to be like his glorious body that everyone who patiently seeks for glory and honor and immortality will be given it in eternal life. That we are supposed to exult in hope of the glory of God. You know I couldn't pass that one up, right? You know what exult means, Presbyterians? Exult is a form of rejoicing that's holistic in body, mind, and sword. It means you literally move your body because you're so joyful in what God has given you. Put your hands up. Come on, Presbyterians. Put your hands up. Yes, didn't that feel good? Let it go. Bubble up. Woo! <laughs> uh, Paul says that we will break free from this corruption into the freedom of the glory of God. And Peter said, the genuineness of our faith results in praise and glory and honor. He says, we will receive an unfading crown of glory. And he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, strengthen, and establish you. That means God knows you're suffering now. He knows we're suffering now. He's not blind to it. It grieves him. It grieves his heart that we are suffering. But it's not for nothing. In that suffering, he is setting us apart, sometimes ripping out of our hands this world and the things of it. Why? Because he is setting us apart for the world to come. He is setting you apart for glory. And that starts now. It's been going on. It's something that we have now. So listen, tomorrow morning, Satan's gonna wake you up. And he's gonna say, hey, I got a deal. (laughs) I got a deal for you. How about uh, this world is better than the next? And when he does that, you can tell that lowballer to kick rocks and just lean into obedience and the power of the spirit that is bubbling up within us and see what kind of crazy stuff God does with that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your word and the encouragement it gives to us. Lord, you have saved us from death. And sin and hell and every evil thing, Lord, so that you have taken care of all the big stuff. You've taken care of all the big stuff, proven yourself trustworthy, proven yourself powerful, proven your promises better. And Lord, so we pray that you would help us to trust you whenever the devil tries to tell us that this world is better than the next. Instead, we could say, no, God is separating us from this world and its corruption because he's separating us and setting us apart for something better, the world to come and the powers of the age to come and an eternal glory that outweighs all the trouble of this world.